on this morning as we continue in our series that have entitled for Christmas for the glory of God and the good of others and we've been studying through Isaiah chapter 52 starting at verse 12 technically uh, verse 13 is where the division in your Bible is going to be uh, but we started there two weeks ago and we've been working through a Christmas message from Isaiah 52 and 53 and as we've been going through this passage of scripture I've been pointing out the fact that there is a servant that is being taught about in this passage of Scripture. Now, if you were to run into some Jewish people, they would argue that you're talking about Israel in this passage. Last week, we spent time diffusing that philosophy and taking the New Testament of the Bible and the Old Testament, marrying the verses together, and it was very, very clear that the servant described in Isaiah 52 and 53 is not the nation of Israel, but it is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And uh, when you take the whole counsel of scripture, use it together, you find out in a panoramic way that this has to be talking about Jesus Christ. And if it's talking about Jesus Christ, then what is the significance of the teaching of this passage of scripture? And that's what we're going to begin to really unwrap, to use a Christmas word, that's what we're going to begin to really unwrap this morning is if this is really about Jesus Christ, then the true spirit of Christmas doesn't come through a warring spirit, but through a humble sacrifice. And if we understand what we just sung in music and the theology that was behind the music that we sung, we would understand that Jesus, when John the Baptist saw him for the first time, he declared what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what do we find in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53? We find the servant, the humble servant, who's giving his life for a cause. And the cause is the world. And the benefactors are all the children of mankind. So uh, if you'll help me out this morning, we're going to read through Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13, and we're going to read all the way down to our passage of Scripture this morning, which is Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. So you'll help me out. Uh, you read what's on the screen, and then uh, I'll read the next verse, and we'll kind of go back and forth, and I'll only have to read half as much as I was going to. So I'll start out. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred that beyond human semblance and of his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him.
but who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds or stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who would consider that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Let's read verse 9 together. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Mary's poor little lamb, right? Y'all know that song. That's not what the song was written about. Uh, the early American song, Mary had a little lamb. Uh, Mary did have a lamb. It was the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And while the Mary had a little lamb, had no, that song has nothing to do with the scripture or with anything in church today. It does remind us of what happened there 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem where Mary had the Lamb of God by virgin birth. And, and this passage of Scripture tells us that there's no violence in him. There's no deceit in this man. This man is going to be a pure man. He's going to be a holy man. He's going to be a special man. He's going to be a humble man. He's going to be a servant. He's going to be God with us, Emmanuel. So this morning as we open the Word of God here, verses 7 through 9 is what we're going to focus on. And I want you to have the idea in mind that, yes, the, the theme of the whole sermon series here is for the glory of God and the good of others. But in the midst of this, the true spirit of Christmas has nothing to do with selfishness or self-desire. It has everything to do with a humble servant who gave himself who emptied himself and literally gave himself as a ransom for many. This is the true spirit of Christmas. The true spirit of Christmas is not going home for the holidays. It's leaving home for the holiday. It's, it's not, I'm going to be with my family. It's, it's leaving God the Father and coming to mankind who are not my family. But I want them to be my family. It's a holy God who, who, who sent his son to die for sinners. And what does holiness and sinners have to do with each other today? You see, we live in cancel culture, don't we? If we don't like you, we're going to throw enough accusations at you that hopefully at some point one of them will stick and we can cancel you and we can wipe you out. You realize Jesus lived in a very similar culture. I mean, they tried to cancel him, didn't they? What did Herod decree right after he found out that there was a star declaring that a new king was born? <laughs> there ain't going to be no king. Everybody two and younger, kill them. Cancel culture. No different than we're living in today. You know, he was not going to be widely accepted. You know, we, we look at Jesus in the Bible, we think that he had like rock star status. Everywhere he went, all these people followed him. 
Do you remember what Jesus himself said? The Son of Man has no place to lay his... Does that sound like popularity? Does that sound like people are just throwing their doors open for him to, to minister and to come? And No. So to understand Christmas, we have to understand the servant. In order to understand the servant, we've got to understand the Father. In order to understand the Father, we have to go to the Word. And we're going to start in the Old Testament here, and we're going to look at Isaiah 53 this morning. Because if there's one thing that this portion of Scripture screams louder than anything else is this. If you are selfish, you're not of God. That's what this screams. If you are selfish, you're not of God. And you say, how? Remember when Jesus left heaven? Philippians 4 tells us this, right? When Jesus left heaven, he took upon him the form of a what? A servant. But before he took on the form of a servant, what did he do before that? He emptied himself. And took upon himself of no, what, what's the Bible say there? Of no reputation. No reputation. Jesus emptied himself. He, gave, he, he, he set aside, he veiled, if you will, who he really was. What was the whole episode of the Mount of Transfiguration? Do you remember this? Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus reveals his glory. He transfigures. He, he, he reveals his glory. And when those guys see his glory, what do they do? They fall down. They begin to worship. Matter of fact, they begin to argue among themselves, what type of shrine or temple should we build in this place that we can come here to worship? And what did Jesus say? <laughs> this isn't about building shrines or anything. What you saw today is my glory because I'm from God. Do you think there was any doubt in Peter, James, and John's minds after that that Jesus was who he said he was? There's a reason these men went on and gave their lives for Jesus Christ. They were willing to die for what Jesus Christ represented. So this morning, I want us to realize how Jesus was like a lamb. How was he like a lamb? And, and what is the significance of a lamb when it comes to scripture? I mean, we all know the old sacrificial system that it took a lamb on the day of atonement to take away, or not take away, but to cover the sins of the Israelites. And that was good for how long? One year, right? And the next year would come along and what would happen? Do it again, right? And the next year we come along. And year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the children of Israel did the same thing, the same way, all the time. Do you think they ever got bored of it? I, I would venture to think. I know in church if we did the same thing every year, people get bored of that in like two years. So you got to give Israel credit. They at least stuck with it for Decades, centuries, millennia. However, we today don't understand the significance of the Lamb. Because we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So today we don't understand the covering aspect of what a Lamb could do temporarily. One life for one year. One life for one sin. One life for one life. Jesus was one life for eternity. Why? Well, it takes an eternal man to die for people for all of 
eternity. Even today in our legal system, if you kill somebody, you deserve what penalty? The death penalty. One life for one life. But in Jesus' situation, it's different. Why? He being eternal, he could die for all men for all time. This is the beauty of why Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus the first time. So when Mary had this Lamb of God in the manger on this Christmas morning that we celebrate here coming up in a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas and we're going to look at this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger and we're going to say, wow, this is great. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. I want us to understand God's always been with us. From the, from the time of creation to eternity future, God's existence is always there. And without God, we wouldn't exist today. Because God is the creator of all things. And in the Garden of Eden, God had a relationship with mankind. Jesus daily walked in the garden and communed with mankind until there was found sin in man. And that sin broke the fellowship between God and man thus propagating a problem between God the Father and human existence. And that is this, God is holy, man is not. Now we need somebody who's holy that can fulfill the problem that man has in being unholy. Thus a chasm, if you will, or a break in fellowship occurs to where God the Father and man have been separated by man's own act. Isaiah 52 and 53 is the act of God restoring the relationship that was broken between God and man. And he's going to use a humble servant who's going to be sacrificed to restore this relationship between God and man. And in order for this to work, in order for this to happen, the humble servant has to empty himself of all that he is and take upon a form of something he's not so that he can become the Messiah, the Hashua HaMashiach, the bridge between God and man, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this in the passage of Scripture that we have. And in order to understand this, we're going to have to use other portions of Scripture as well. We'll throw those up on the screen as we go here. So... As a lamb was quietly led to the slaughter because it doesn't know what's going to happen, Jesus, on the other hand, absolutely knew what was about to happen. Look with me at verse 7 again of our passage. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Listen to... Um, what Luke had to say about this situation, uh, Luke 9:51, and when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew where he was going to go. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew in the garden when he prayed, "Let this cup pass from me, not my will, but your will be done." He knew he was going to die on a cross. He knew that was the reason for which he came. And in his public teachings, we even see that he declares this is why he came. When Jesus stood before a high priest, 
when he stood before Pilate, when he stood before Herod, never did he try to defend himself. Why? He didn't have to answer to them. He was, he was on a mission from a higher calling. Listen to what Matthew has to say in chapter 26, verses 62 and 63. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? Man, don't we live in a culture like that today? People are just throwing accusations at people and throwing them out there. And, and you know what? We're even seeing it in churches today. We're even seeing it in churches today. People just throw accusations at people. They don't give a rip about what happens to the person. They just want justice, right? They just want to be right. Well, look what it goes on to say. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, we could teach a whole message right there, couldn't we? What is that man saying? I adjure you by the living God. Who's standing in front of him? The living God. I adjure you by you. Tell us that you are you. Do you see it? That's how the Greek reads. I, I adjure you by your presence and your position and who you say you are, that you are who you are. Prove that you are. Prove you're the God. Prove you're the Christ. I adjure you by the living God. Now, Mark gets a little better at this. Luke 15, 4 and 5, check this out. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was what? He's bewildered. Why would, why would you not defend yourself? I don't even believe the accusations being thrown at you. Why, why will you not defend yourself? Luke gives us a little more in depth into this. Check out this, Luke 23, verses 8 9. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wants a magic trick, doesn't he? He, he, he wants to be entertained by Jesus. I've heard these rumors about you. I, I wanted to meet you. You're like celebrity status. And look what Jesus does. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Why would Jesus not answer? I mean, do you not know who these people are? I mean, this is Herod. This is Pilate. This is the high priest. I mean, these are important people when it comes to the civilization, to government, to, to the world in which Jesus lives. And yet, what does Jesus do? Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. He's dumb. He doesn't speak a word. Lamb was an animal of sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Old Testament foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself on the cross. In Genesis 22, God told Abraham in verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, one on one of the mountains which I will show you. And as Abraham takes his son Isaac, they travel together, and uh, they get up to the mountain that God shows him, and uh, he's una Isaac's unaware that God told Abraham to sacrifice him. And once they arrive at the place for the offering, Abraham reveals to Isaac the sad news. Isaac is placed on the altar, but just as Abraham is about to kill his, his own son, the angel of Jehovah shows up. And he stops him. He calls to him from heaven and says, verse 12, 
do not lay your hand upon the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And I don't have time to develop all the nuances of this. But what was God interested in here? Obedience or sacrifice? Later on in the Bible, we find out again when we run into David and, well, really Samuel and Saul, right? And God says to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And it's interesting, what does God give Abraham in this story? He gives him a ram in, in a thicket, caught in a thicket. Abraham's son is spared. God's son was not spared. God's son was sent to the cross. Jesus provided the lamb who took our place on the cross. When John the Baptist saw him first in uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, the death of the suffering servant is important to us. It's important for all of mankind because the suffering servant was a lamb who took away the sin of the world. This is why the virgin birth matters. This is why Jesus being born in Bethlehem matters. This is why Jesus being in Nazareth and, and increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man and all these things matter of the Christmas story because all of them culminate together the message that God is trying to get to mankind and that is this. Jesus is doing this for my glory and for your benefit and no other reason. Why else would Jesus leave heaven? Why else would Jesus quit what he had sitting at the right hand of the throne of God to empty himself and to come down to earth and live as a human being, increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man and, and do the things that he did on the earth and what, to what end? What, what would be the reason he would do such thing? You know what it is? It's found in the most quoted verse in all the Bible. John three sixteen. For God so loved who? The lost. Man, we as churches need to get back there. We as Christians need to get back to where God's heart is. But the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, love the Father is not in him. Yeah, but that's talking about loving, not being controlled by the things of the world. We should be moved by the people that are in the world. Because we should see them as Jesus saw them, as sheep having no shepherd. And what was Jesus? He said, I am the good shepherd. Verses 7 through 9 foretell the unjust suffering of the servant. He's going to be oppressed. He's going to be afflicted. He's not going to open his mouth. He's going to be oppressed and judged. He's going to be taken away from his generation. He's going to be considered that he's cut off from the land of the living. He's going to be stricken for the transgressions of my people, God says. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Let's talk about his trial a little bit. He was oppressed in judgment. He was taken away. Jesus' trial was all but fair, right? <laughs> it was all but following the rules. His trial was rushed. It was hacked. It had false accusations. It was done in the wrong time period. They were in a hurry. He had no, he had no justice. The whole goal was to get rid of him because he was messing up the system. His execution 
As for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Mark says it this way in Mark 15, 27. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. What does that equate Jesus to? A thief. He's a robber. He lied. He's deceitful, yet in his mouth there was what? No deceit. No lies. His execution was rushed. It was hurried. His burial. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Verse 9. 1 Peter 2.22 literally says he committed no sin. His innocence is there as, as well. Neither no sin or deceit was found in his mouth. He was innocent, both in word and in deed. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who judges justly today? There's only one, God the Father. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says who? It looks like there's a lot of evil getting, getting away with stuff today, right? Doesn't it? A lot of evil, it just seems to go unchecked in the world. David, if you ever read through the Psalms, you'll see David cry out all the time about this, right? God, why are the righteous forsaken and the, why, why do the unrighteous just thrive? Where are you, God? Praise the Lord for his long suffering, right? Could you imagine that the first sin you committed, God just took you out? Boom, done. We'd have been gone in like 2.3 hours. First time you cried and you didn't need anything, you'd be gone. God is long-suffering. God is gracious. God is good. He's merciful. Are those characteristics that describe your life today? You see, if you're selfish, you're going to want to always get what is right, what always is good for you. And the problem with being selfish is this. It takes God out of your life and puts you first. And in the process of doing that, you violate the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, we have to empty ourselves. The true spirit of Christmas the word spirit can mean a special attitude or a frame of mind. The, the special attitude or frame of mind of Christmas is a humble sacrifice. A humble servant who sacrificed for us. Paul, the apostle, encourages this through the church of Philippi. He says to the Philippian people in verses, or chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Sorry, I think I said Philippians 4 earlier. I meant Philippians 2. Um, but Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you that it was also in Christ Jesus. What is the attitude of Jesus Christ? Well, the verse tells us, verses 6 through 8. Who thought he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. In other words, he didn't try to be God the Father. Instead, he empties himself. He takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he says, say the next two words together with me. He humbled, you know the only person that can humble you is you. He humbled who? By becoming what? 
it's better to obey than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. If you're going to be a sacrifice for Jesus Christ, then you've got to empty yourself. And the Christmas spirit isn't about what we can get. It's about what we can... Well, it's not even that, is it? Because what do I have to give? If I've emptied myself, what do I have? I have nothing. So I can't give anything. So all that I can do, I can do for the glory of God and for the good of... There's the Christmas spirit. That's what Christmas is all about. You can only do things for the glory of God. If you have truly emptied yourself and made yourself of nothing else, then the only thing you can do is glorify God in your body, which, by the way, who gave that to you? Who gave you life? Who made you a steward of life? So we can reflect back to God his glory, and we can do good for who? Everybody around us. But you see, if your life is in the things that you possess, in the things that you desire, in the things that you have, you are of all people most miserable. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of our Savior. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what God the Father foreordained before the foundations of the earth, that his son would be rejected by men, be crucified on the cross, resurrect the third day, giving to all of them eternal life, and doing it for absolutely nothing more than the glory of God and the good of others. Because anything more than that, he himself would, be, would become the reputable person. Jesus allowed himself to be led to the slaughter so that he could die for our sins in his own body on the tree. At the core of sinfulness is self-centeredness. At the core of sinfulness is self-centeredness. We want to be praised. We want to be pleased. But Jesus was humiliated. He was crucified. And the craziest part about it is, what was his attitude in doing it? He says, I willingly lay my life down as a ransom for many. Who does that today? Who talks like this? Who does this kind of stuff? Only people filled with the Spirit of God are going to do this. Only people who are different on purpose are going to do this. Only people who are filled with the Holy Spirit are going to have this mind. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. What does Philippians 2 tell us? This is possible. To live this way is not only possible, but it's expected by God the Father and those that are truly following him as, their children, as his children. Let this mind be in you. In other words, this is how you should think. Think like Jesus thought. Act like Jesus thought. Do what Jesus did. He emptied himself. He didn't seek praise he sought to please others. He didn't do things for his own gratification, for his own ego, for his own security. Was Jesus mocked? Oh, yeah, he was. Was Jesus ridiculed? Did Jesus get things gossiped about him? Did Jesus ever try to defend himself? And you know what? In today's culture, imagine Christians that were the same way. You say, well, they're going to be weak and, and, yeah, but it's not about us. 
Who cares if we're weak? Who cares if we're anemic? Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says who? Is he weak? Has he stumbled? Has he forgotten what day of the week it might be? What season we're in? We're living in a time period that's not so unprecedented as history past. Imagine trying to celebrate Christmas under the Roman Empire. Imagine trying to share the gospel under the Roman influence and Roman persecution, i.e. Nero. That's who all the disciples were sharing the gospel under. I mean, we have Joe Biden today. Wow! Woo! We had Barack Obama. We had, we had George Bush. We had Donald Trump. You know what? It doesn't matter who's in control. It doesn't matter who the leader of the free world or the unfree world or anything else. They had Nero. They had Domitian. The Nazis had Hitler. The Iraqis had Saddam Hussein. There's believers in Iraq today. The gospel works because it's the gospel. It doesn't work because of some political party, because of some nation you're living in or not living in. The gospel works because it's the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who what? The problem is there's not a lot of believers today. There's a lot of participants there's a lot of interest, but there's not a whole lot of believers today. Because if there were, what would be the sign of believers? They would take on the form of the servant. And what was the servant's standard? What was his modus operandi? He emptied himself. That's the trait of people in church today, right? We like to empty ourselves. They serve. That's something we like today. We like to serve, don't we? No, we like to be served. We like for people to notice us. And you see, the message of this Christmas, I think, is opposite of what the world's trying to tell us today. You need to protect yourself. Now, you don't need to protect yourself. Whose hands could you better be in than God's? Right? It's a point on a man once to die after that what? The judgment. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? I'd rather kneel down in obedience than fear. I'd rather kneel, have done my life serving him by emptying myself and serving Christ than, than to be consuming everything in the world that I could get. The true spirit of Christmas is humble self-sacrifice. Go back to Isaiah 53 with me. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You ever seen a sheep try to fight? It's not pretty. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Who cared? Did anybody care that Jesus died? How many people rejoiced the fact that Jesus died? The high priests were happy about it. Herod was happy about it. Pilate, while discouraged, ultimately it was a headache gone. Not a whole lot of people mourn the fact that Jesus died. Matter of fact, the book of Hebrews was written for what purpose? The, the Jews had forgotten 
the crucifixion so fast that, well, now Jesus is gone. We'll just go back to the old sacrificial system. The high priest is still there. The priests are still in the temple. The temple's still standing. Let's go back and just go back to the old ways. And the entire book of Hebrews is written on the purpose of stop doing that. And there's warning passages that say don't turn back. Don't look back. Don't go back. How can they who were once enlightened to the truth turn back and go again? Hebrews 6. For consider him. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, right? Consider him, the one who suffered such contradiction of sinners against themselves, lest you grow weary in your own mind, for you have not yet spilled any blood for this cause. Jesus has. So you say, what, Pastor Joe, what, what is the point of the message? The point of the message is simply this. If we're going to be like Jesus this Christmas, then the first thing we need to do is empty ourselves and begin serving. And what's our motive for serving? The glory of God and the good of others. We glorify God through our actions and our words, and we do good for those around us. This is the whole essence of Christmas. So if you get nothing else out of this series, I, I, I want to challenge you to get this. We do things for the glory of God and the good of others. Next week, Lord willing, we'll wrap this thing up in a nice big bow on the present. Because as we move down through the passage of Scripture, it becomes very clear what the servant did for us. How we get righteousness even though we have iniquity. How, how we are divided with the strong and with the righteous and with the, with the holy because of what the servant does for us. But before we can get there, we have to understand that a humble servant spirit is what God recognizes. He, he can't use somebody that's full of themselves. He can't do it. Well, he can. He just won't. It goes against his nature because who's going to get the glory? You will. And when you're glorified, who do we not glorify? And when you do something well, who, you, who you, do you usually, who gets the credit? Guess what I did? Look what I did. Guess what I got? And when we're so consumed with ourselves, God's not getting the glory. We are. And when we get the glory, who are we robbing? We're robbing God of his glory, and we're robbing those around us of the blessing of ministry going to them. Because instead of being channels only, we're consuming of our own lust, and we have a reward. So this Christmas, may it be for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is quick and it's powerful. I thank you, Father, that when we study it out, we can see that it's not one passage of Scripture teaching a truth. It's the entire counsel of the Word of God working together to show us in a panoramic, high-definition view what you are all about. And God, if there's one thing we know from your Scripture studying it out, is that you are a preserver of your glory. Your glory above all else will be preserved. And even if you, all of humanity refused to give you glory, Father, the, the very rocks that you created would cry out and glorify you. And Father, you are very jealous of your glory. You won't share your glory with another God, and you won't share your glory with people who are going to consume it of their own lust. 
And yet, Father, you make your glory available to every one of us so that we can reflect the glory back to you. And when we glorify you in word and deed, God, you alone get the glory. It's not by works of righteousness which we can do, but according to your mercy, you saved us. And when somebody gets saved, God, we glorify you. There's more, there's more celebration in heaven when one sinner repents than 99 just people who don't need repentance. And God, you are glorified when the walls of sin are torn down and people are restored in a relationship with you. And Father, there's probably some that are either watching this video or they're here in the auditorium this morning that, Lord, they're struggling in their own personal lives. They're struggling in their relationship with you. Because, Father, we make a lot of things about ourselves. But, Father, may this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus. May this holiday season, may, may these next several weeks, as we finish up this series, for the glory of God and the good of others. May, Father, the next two weeks, may we begin to empty ourselves. May we begin to focus on others and your glory more than ourselves. Father, you said in your word that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Father, we have to confess first. We need to confess that what we're doing is not what you want us to do. We need to agree with you that what we're doing is wrong and that we need to change directions and do something differently. And Father, I pray that as we ponder this phrase, for the glory of God and the good of others, that, Father, we would see the Christmas spirit, that we would see what you desire. When you left heaven, you did it for the glory of God and for the good of others, the good of us. And, Father, you've left us here as your ambassadors to preach the same message for the glory of God and the good of others. And, Father, whether therefore we eat or drink or whatever we do, may we do all for the glory of you. And the result be that we did it for the good of others. Father, if there's somebody here today who doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray, Lord, that they would see the need for them to yield their, their body a living sacrifice to you, to be able to give it back to you, be able to give their life to you, to surrender their will for your will, their life for your life, eternal life. I pray, Father, that we would see that we have missed the mark when it comes to the expectation of God and that we do fall short of the glory of God. And that, Father, there is a need for a Savior. And it's not by works of righteousness that we can do that impresses you. It's full surrender and testimony of who you are. That, Father, we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. So, Father, I pray that there's somebody here this morning that needs to surrender to you. Lord, that they would get down on their hands and knees and they'd say, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. And Father, may they receive into their, their life your life. May they exchange their will for your will, their life for your life, and their ways for your way, saith the Lord. And Lord, for the Christians who are here, Lord, may our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify, there's that word again, that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, may we do it for the good of others. In your name we ask and all God's people said, amen.